Hello, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. We've got 321Go with Cosmo Macero this week, then an interview with Bobby Livingston from RR Auctions. And in two minutes with Tom, we're talking about lifting the cap on kids here in Massachusetts. Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, if you're an adult with kids, it's very possible you've fallen for the Momo Challenge hoax. That's the creepy bird person thing that has gone hyper-viral on YouTube, allegedly encouraging children to do dangerous things. The good news is, your kids probably didn't fall for it. We'll discuss all the hoopla and the problem with content cesspools on YouTube. And Walmart takes a PR hit for reclassifying a highly visible job that's often filled by disabled workers. But do they really deserve all the bad press they've been getting? We'll explain. Finally, should 16-year-olds be allowed to vote in federal elections? Congresswoman Ayanna Presley thinks so. We'll take a fast look at her first major proposal in Washington. Joining me here on 321 Go is Ian Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on air. Kyan, what's going on this week? Busy week. Busy week? Busy week as always. Good week. No complaints? No complaints. You always have no complaints. I mean, I don't really feel like our OA on air world really wants to hear that. I feel anyway, like you complain so. off air. <laughs> That's not fair. All right, let's get to it. All right, Kyan. So You've, um, if you're a parent, you've almost certainly now heard of the Momo Challenge, uh, and seen this this figure. It's a very, it's, it's really scary. It's actually Creepy. just a piece of Japanese sculpture, but it's this sort of bird, half bird, half human, uh, weird looking bug eye. And it's made for horror movies, I believe. Yeah, it's, it's exactly. It's, it's it's a frightening. Just looking <laughs> at the thing is frightening, um, and it, it it has taken on a light a. a a huge life of its own uh, has become a runaway viral kind of a modern day digital ghost story right this is this is one of the ways in which people experience sort of scary things is things flying around youtube and in this case there's been uh this notion that videos sometimes infiltrating kid videos like peppa the pig and other things will then which are geared towards very, very young kids. Very young kids. Yes. And that this thing pops up and starts encouraging kids to do, do, do dangerous and strange things, to hurt themselves, to escalate these challenges all the way to the unthinkable. Uh, uh, really, really harming yourself, and, and it, it has a, has had a lot of parents freaked out. Mm -hmm. um, the reality is, it, it, it's it's pretty much an elaborate. Uh, and sort of multifaceted hoax that has really taken root. And mostly parents have fallen for it yes. and not kids. It's and a good reminder, though, that YouTube is really the Wild West of content. It is. What do you think? Have you had to deal with this uh, at home? I ha I've had a little bit. Yeah. Um, it, well, and our kids are different ages. So yes. I have a five-year-old, and yeah, we -year recently took YouTube kids off of his iPad for multiple reasons, but one of which was, it's all commercials. And we just didn't like the idea that he was able to kind of 
even with parameters set on YouTube Kids, we've kind of able to like click and go down various paths and maybe we don't know because let's be serious and honest here. If your kid is watching YouTube Kids, you're most likely not sitting there with them. You're doing something else. Yeah. Um, no shape in that. But the problem is that this is going, and what I hope happens is it forces YouTube and YouTube Kids to really take a look at what they're doing. I mean, we saw Facebook come out this week. Mark Zuckerberg is saying, I'm going to redo the way this platform exists, and I'm yep. going to focus on privacy. I'm going to focus on security. And... You know, I hope that's the first step for a lot of other companies because, as you said, it is the wild, wild west on these apps and sites. Yeah. And if you're not monitoring everything, that's scary stuff can happen. Not the Momo challenge per se, because that's not real, but there are other bad things yeah. that can come. I, I'm I'm a big user of YouTube, and I use it very purposely. I look for certain things that I want. I look for videos about how to play a certain song on the guitar or yeah. a certain a piece of news or whatever it might be. And I've got things, favorites, and such. The only time I really experience YouTube in that sort of mindless way is when I'm, when I'm going to bed or half, half asleep and I'm just kind of scrolling through and once in a while I might realize, wow, i got to be careful that the kids aren't just sort of doing this because all kinds of crazy stuff pops up from uh, out of left field. And You can start uh, over here and end up And you wind up way... in some strange place 90 minutes <laughs> yeah. later. Like, what am I doing? <laughs> so it's a time suck and... Again, from a parental standpoint, you really got to be careful. This thing really got a lot of parents nervous, and ultimately it's a big hoax, and, and none of the horror stories have really come to fruition of what happened to certain kids in certain places. Yeah, but I think the nerves are appropriate because what it did was really remind people that there's stuff going on that if you're not sitting with your kids, you don't know what they're seeing. And it's easy to get sucked into that yeah. sort of, I've been scrolling for, you know, an yeah. hour. Kids right? too. Especially kids. All right, Cayenne. All right, Kayan, let's talk about Walmart. Now, look, let's just stipulate that as companies go in America, Walmart typically, historically, about the easiest company to beat up on, and people beat up on Walmart all the time for all kinds of things. And in this case, they have endured something of a PR crisis or, 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 or some turbulence. because Stumble. they Stumble. They've reclassified one of the most visible positions that they're known for, right? The the Walmart greeter, that 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 friendly, nice person that as you walk in the door and they smile and they've got the blue vest on, and and many of those employees, and this is a nice feature of of Walmart, and they've built this history and they've had this position for decades. Many of those employees uh, um, are, are disabled persons, mm -hmm. right? Giving them an opportunity to work, they've had to reclassify, you know, uh, those positions, or at least that's what Walmart says. We've had to reclassify them. Let's make an assumption that in in dealing with brick and mortar retail, because you know it's a it's a it's a great struggle even for the big retailers. Look at Sears, look at Kmart, look at Toys R Us, big brands, big retail stalwarts. Boom, wiped off the face of the earth. Basically, Sears is making a comeback, but they're in real trouble. Still have to make a comeback. So Walmart says, okay, that position. We need we need to reclassify it so you're not just a greeter, but you might have to step on a ladder. You got to stock a shelf. You, there's some basic physical things that, some, that people with disabilities or certain people are not going to be able to do, and that's the rub. People say, "Whoa, slow down! You're you're throwing these people out of these jobs." So let's pause there because, yeah, that's that's kind of a PR hit, right? Yes. So 
I think the bigger problem here is that this is something that Walmart was known for, and it was really a really positive, good thing that they did. Yeah, and they didn't do it for the PR. I think they truly did it. They thought it was a good thing to do. And now you're seeing something that was such a strong attribute of a company kind of change. And I think that's tough. That being said, they are struggling to survive. They have to figure it out. I would argue, however, that while you are struggling to survive, the things that people don't beat you up for and really have always prided you on yeah. are probably not the things that should be the first to go. Yeah. And, and this this was like an evolution. This wasn't even like an started, overnight. Yeah, it started fl- a few years ago. It wasn't even an overnight thing. But some people have been displaced, and it's gotten some attention. And they've said, look, I, I, I'm not going to be able to have any job at Walmart or anywhere else. I've, I've counted on this. And... And there's been some advocacy behind that. But the reality is, if you look closely, they have systematically been placing these displaced workers into other positions. For the most that, part. For yeah. the most part. That yep. they are able to that they're able to still function. So and I'm not sure if it's eighty percent or what it, it's it's the majority of those people mm-hmm. so far. It's not everyone. And if it's not everyone, you know what? There's room there to be critical. But I think you're absolutely right. When you have this very positive feature of your corporate profile that no, no matter what else, you know, they, they, they have this big man, the USA theme, but they ship things in from China and, and you know, the cheap goods and they don't putting, pay benefits. Putting small businesses And they're putting out small of business. businesses out, out, <laughs> out of business across America for the last 25 years. All those things. This one thing, you change that, yeah, it's, 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 it's going to create some PR turbulence. Well, and one of the things we talk about a lot here with clients that are facing a crisis, and they're like, how do we, you know, how do, we do this? And it's do the right thing. Yeah. If you do the right thing, take the right steps, and, and, the, and the rest of it will follow. And this is sort of one of those examples of, I get you had to restructure. There's money. There's, you know, believe yeah. me. But... Might not have been the best. It might, might not, not have been, been the best. Move. I'm gonna give. I'm gonna give them this. I'm gonna say that their CFO and their management, and their leadership said, "You know what? <clears throat> this is not a negotiable thing. We have to reclassify these positions because of our cost structure." However, you've got to be transparent and tell people what you're doing and tell people how it's going. I think they've actually done that. They've let the public know we're reclassifying, we're reassigning these people, we're doing everything we can, and they're having some success. So I think that's really important too. But no question, they're going to take it on the chin a little bit over this. Yep. All right. Thanks, Kyan. All right, Kyan, Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, one of... Her, her first major proposals comes out this week. Um, took me by took me by surprise. Um, reducing the voting age for federal elections, so congressional elections and the presidential, to age sixteen. Mm-hmm. Sixteen. Some sixteen-year-olds wouldn't even be able to drive themselves there. Wouldn't even be able to drive. <laughs> I I got a sixteen-year-old. I'm talking about you know. Did you brush your teeth? Did you turn off the stove? <laughs> Did you do this? Don't forget your backpack. And and then voting? It's like in the voting booth? Can I bring my smartphone? Can I drag the Xbox in? Do they have Fortnite at the voting place? Voting is hard. <laughs> What's this? this what do you this is a voting pencil? smart <laughs> is hard because you want voters know. to be educated. Yeah. Um and I don't know how many 16-year-olds are educated enough about voting. That being said, I'm sure there are some that are 
probably more educated than I am on some things. Um, I do think that this this crop of like 16 and 17 year olds and, and sort of that, I don't know what that millennial group is called, but um, they're advocates and they're they're speaking up in a lot of areas. And they're that's, so that's, there's, yeah, that's the con- it's different. That's... There's a different tone to what they're doing. I thought she had a really good point about these are the ones who are going to inherit what we're doing and why don't we give them a say i can speak for myself they get a say, at 16, they get a say when they're 18 at 16 i was not even remotely interested enough or educated enough to make a good decision in the voting booth but i'm sure there are many that are we can't lump them all into one category there are 30 year olds and 60 year olds who are also not educated enough to make good choices so I don't know, but does it get them more inclined? Does it get them more engaged it at might. an earlier age? I'll leave you with know. this. Uh, it seems to me, and, and, and you know what, maybe politics, maybe this is pure policy and pure, this is the future of America. But from a, from a political standpoint, it seems to me that the congresswoman is stipulating that the, 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 this next generation is all, they're all progressives. And guess what? They're not. They're not. Yeah. You, you know, Forty percent off the top are not progressives. Yeah. Just, just do the math. Forty percent off the top are, are are probably Trump type voters or or conservative type voters. You got to assume that. You've yeah. got to assume that. Mixed so I don't know. Is there politics at work or not? It's interesting, and it's interesting to see where this goes. I think it's great conversation. Even it is, if it, it doesn't happen, I think it's a great conversation. I, I for feel us to like have. there's going to be bipartisan skepticism. Like. Really? I don't know about this. I think it depends on what 16-year-old you have in mind when you're thinking about this, too. But again, I don't have a feeling on it either way at this point, but I do think it's a really good conversation for our country to have. And bravo to the congresswoman for knowing how to make news. Yes. Always good. All right, Cayenne, another action-packed episode. Thank you. Always good to be here. Excellent. That's going to do it for this week's edition of 321GO. Our program is recorded in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room at our building in the heart of Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. That's all for 321 Go. Up next, an interview with local auctioneer Bobby Livingston. All right, up next, we're joined by Bobby Livingston. He's the executive vice president of RR Auction, company right here in Boston. Bobby, welcome to OA On Air. Hey, it's great to be here. It's wonderful to be in an O'Neill Associates building. <laughs> uh, you know, you guys are so historic and such a well-known uh, PR company here in Boston. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. That's right. We like to say we're right off the historic Tip O'Neill room, so I really, really appreciate that. It's great to have you. So I um, want to talk about your company. want to talk about um, the auction business and industry, but also just sort of the process and dynamic of obtaining uh, these remarkable historical items and other other auction lots that you have. First off, first off, though, start with the company and a little bit of the history and background. Um, I've become familiar with it uh, as, I, as I'm learning about the auction business, um, but but I want to make more people familiar with the company here in Boston because you've got a terrific history uh, and a really strong um, position in, in in the auction business of high end items. Love to love to learn more about it. Well, our auction was uh, founded by Bob Eaton in 1976 uh, in a basement in Newton Center, Massachusetts, and now it's grown to we've I think we we sold a little more than 15 million dollars last year in collectibles. Uh, we've got 
22 employees, full-time employees, and uh, dozens and dozens of consultants and appraisers and authenticators that we use. So it's quite a big operation. Uh, we, we have uh, thousands of customers, many from all over the world. So not only do we sell to uh, uh, individuals in the United States, but we have major clients in the United Kingdom, China, Australia, all coming uh, and buying things here in Boston from our auction. It's pretty amazing pretty amazing company and RR uh, has evolved the RR means remarkable results and that's what we deliver that's what we deliver to collectors and consigners from uh, all over the world when they have something special and uh, notable they send it to us like we we as you know Cosmo we held some John F. Kennedy sales here at the Parker House and also at the Sinesta Hotel in Cambridge where we sold uh, the last car that Kennedy actually was in uh, that drove him to the airport in Fort Worth when he flew to Dallas so it's the, uh, we sold a white Lincoln Continental uh, that has great pictures of Jackie in that famous Pink Chanel suit. Yep. We sold that for over three hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars because you know it's the tragedy happened in a different automobile. This was this was the la this was a white one and it was beautiful. So uh, bought by a museum. Uh, we sell to institutions and not just collectors. So uh, we we we're we're really really good at finding. Uh, historically significant items and offering them here in Boston. Just right, th right there, that little snapshot. There's a lot of remarkable right there. But when I look at your um, at uh, at your website, I look at your auction listings. Uh, the sheer, I think you right now you've got over 800 items just right now listed. The sheer volume of of really, really interesting historic. Uh, high end is not really the right word. It's historic, sort of precious items. Letters, documents from presidents and secretaries of state and celebrities and all kinds of historic pieces. Um, the the process of of making acquisitions, it, it, honestly, it, it it certainly boggles my mind. And, and what you have to do and the relationships you have to develop to get access to that kind of stuff. Um, there's probably some secret sauce in there, but tell me a little bit about it uh, and, and how you go about putting uh, your company in position to acquire these items. It's a very simple secret, and it's what you said. It's a relationship. We are a marketplace for people that collect and buy and sell documents and famous letters. That's our bread and butter. So if you have a... a, so, a, so a those are your specialties. You mentioned the vehicle, but your specialty is the documents and the, and, the, and the letters. Our expertise and how we made ourselves in the industry was selling historic documents, letters. Bob Eaton, Bill White, several others that work with us are handwriting experts. They're able to authenticate signatures uh, to... Uh, Bob Eaton... Bill White, Tricia Eaton, they're all authenticators. They're experts in handwriting. They can in immediately identify if something's not authentic. And that makes it, you know, makes it very simple for someone to call me up and say, hey, I have a military commission that my grandfather you know, got from Franklin Roosevelt. Well, we need to take a look at it because Franklin Roosevelt didn't sign all the military commissions. You know, it, it likely could have been a secretary, but he does sign some of them. So we have the knowledge to know that's real, that's not real. And once we have that uh, understanding we're able to um, give great customer service and deliver remarkable results to our consigner and then the person that buys it from us knows we've done the due diligence to make sure what we've sold is authentic so here we've started a relationship because now the collectibles out 
in someone else's hands and one day it's going to come where they need to sell it. You know, whether, you know, uh, we, we have the three D's in our, in our business, death, debt, and divorce. Yeah. These, these things will come back. And so as long as our auction creates this lasting relationship with our, with our clients, these items will come back to us. So because we have uh, auctions every single month, we are, we're a marketplace for documents. So like you said, we have 800 in this current auction. Next week, we've got 1,000 items uh, related to rock and roll history. After that, you know, we work for, we work for actual astronauts that went to the moon, Apollo astronauts in their 80s, but they send us their things. So every month, we are uh, building a community of collectors, consigners, buyers, dealers, flippers, you know, and they all trust RR's brand because we care about authenticity and we care about uh, customer service. And so that's the secret sauce is good customer service, service and, relationship. and relationships. And, 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 and it's really, Cosmo, one of the strangest things that you would think that there's you know, hundreds of thousands of people that are collecting in these things. It's not true. It's a very small community around the world that wants something that went to the moon. Yeah, that's, so that, that's something I learned in my first conversations with yourself and Bob Eaton is that it is not a mass market. It is a very narrow market. So you know... Not, not, you don't just have the relationships with the people you're acquiring items from in, in these different walks of life. The relationships with, the, with, with that small subset of humanity that's a legitimate buyer, right? Absolutely. And these people are passionate about what they buy from us. And so if we're, if you know, just like if you're selling any other product, if you don't know about, you know, the, the Apollo 14 mission say, and you want to sell something from the Apollo 14 mission to, to an expert, an engineer, a scientist, someone who's collecting these things. I mean, you've got to know your stuff. And, yeah. once, and once, you know your, once you know your product, and these, these are esoteric things that you know, all of us have to learn, but once we can have a, a great conversation with a collector, then we have the relationship. And then they can, because they can't talk about uh, their uh, Apollo collection really were their wives or their children. They, you know, they just, they don't care. Yeah. <laughs> they, don't, they, don't, they don't emotionally connect to it. I mean, that's what's so great about memorabilia and ephemera and things uh, from, you know, your favorite rock and roll band or your favorite astronaut is that we emotionally connect with that item and brings us, brings this moment of our youth to life. You know, a lot of people, um, you know, collect the Beatles because they saw the Beatles on Ed, Ed Sullivan. You know, I was a little too young for Ed Sullivan, but I did watch men walk on the moon. Yeah. I mean, so I, you know, they, they brought us in a classroom and, you know, these are, these are mythical heroes. And so when you can go to our catalog and, you know, flip through the pages and see, you know, the last man on the moon, Gene Cernan has consigned something to our auction that he took to the moon and you could buy it from us you know that's that's uh, yeah. quite an opportunity, and Pretty then and, and when the, the person buys it, owns it, and then you can pick up the phone and call our auction and say, "Did you really get this from Gene Cernan? What's Gene Cernan like?" You know, so it just it's just that's that's the world we live in here in Boston. We're 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 in and out with uh, uh, incredibly famous people, our famous families, um, you know, provenance, where things come from, really matter. Uh, so, and I, I, in a second, I, I want to wind back to a comment you made about a, about this expertise you have, but. Um, a, you know, estates, transfers of wealth, generational transfers, those are the moments in, in, in a family's life where you have an opportunity to acquire some of these things, right? As well as other bequeaths, and, but other things, right? Uh, am, am, am I, I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's one of the opportunities. I think the the most exciting opportunity for us is when, like, you know, just on my way down here, we were contacted by a former employee of the company that made Neil Armstrong's spacesuit, yeah. right? And he just called us up and said, listen, I've got something from 50 years ago. We did the molds for the boots of Neil Armstrong's foot. And, you know, my children don't want it. I don't know what to do with it. Will you sell it for it? Yes, yes, yes. yes. I mean, because if you think about the the, sim, uh, the symbolic nature of Neil, the first step on the moon, one small step. Here is the his boot. boot. That's it. That's the yeah, boot. Well, it's the it's it, it's uh, uh, the basis for the boot that would be the sure. first step. But that you know is so exciting. So it's not coming. So this, it's funny because we're, we're storytellers here, and, and and you know, in the world of public relations and 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 and, and media and uh, and content and such and. The story behind these items is so important to the value. I, it has to be. Absolutely, because you can tell the whole story. Especially that one, right? Because yeah. you have to understand, okay, that's not Neil Armstrong's boot. Why do I care? Well, here's why you should care. Because think about the story and what went into making the boot that took that first step. Yeah, and, and it is an imprint of his, of his foot. Yeah. You know, so it's the manufactured process. But having a, you know, a, you know probably that originally would have cost the United States government millions of dollars to invest just to figure out how to create a space suit for a guy to walk on the moon. And here's yeah. part of that process. Uh, and for it to come out of someone's closet, you know, uh, and get into the, a collector's hands is extremely rewarding and exciting. So yes, you know, estates call us and collectors call us, but when, when the original recipient or someone who created we, we get it. You know, it's very exciting. I, and I don't know if you, you know, we had you come down and meet us in Portland Street when we sold an Apple One computer. I don't know if you remember how I, exciting. I, I, well, I, want, I wanted to follow up on that for a couple of reasons. And just first of all, for our for our listeners, we're talking to Bobby Livingston from RR Auction in Boston. And you're right. I came down to that. I, it, it was a remarkable experience. Um, I think... That well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna speak for uh, for the average American, but I know my experience or my sort of frame of reference for the auction business. There's a couple of things that I think of that have informed uh, what I think of. It's kind of the fast talking, you know, the fast talking guy on at a, at a cattle auction or something like that. It's a charity auction. It is Sotheby's or Christie's, where it's this sort of opulent setting and these uh, incredibly expensive items. And, and I think for many Americans, they think auction, they think eBay, right? Where does a company like RR Auction sort of come down in that sort of, among those different sort of touch points of what people think about the auction industry? Well, we're very, very early uh, inhabitants of uh, internet auctions. We used to do telephone auctions where you never we never had a gaveled audience auction. We did it over the telephone or th even through the mail. We used to have mail. You'd write us a letter with your bid. Uh, as technology advanced, I think around 1996 is when you st we started our first website and we were able to begin doing uh, internet auctions. So, you know, we were, we were right around eBay's uh, origins. So, uh, over, so, we were strictly online and then around 2000 um, nine or ten, we had the opportunity to have a very high-profile um, auction related to Bonnie and Clyde. We, I went to a guy's house in Texas, and he had the guns that one belonged to Bonnie, one belonged to Clyde Barrow that had been uh, taken 
off of them by Frank Hamer, uh, the Texas Ranger that hunted down Bonnie and Clyde. And these, you know, he 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 left a note saying this was this gun was strapped to Bonnie's thigh. So when you when you walk into someone's house, you can imagine Cosmo like what <laughs> what <laughs> this is the gun that was with Bonnie Parker when she was when she was uh, killed. So uh, we had the opportunity, and we said, you know, this is really big. Uh, this is really so historic. We really should do it live. So we 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 entered into the live gavel sale. So uh, now it was such a success. We do at least one or two live auctions a year. One of them that you went to with the yeah, Apple One. So we're kind of in the middle from the brick and mortar traditional Sotheby's Christie's uh, uh, venue that you talked about. You know, we can go toe to toe. We sold. I, we've sold. You know, a watch for one point six million dollars. I mean, we can outsell Sotheby's in certain. Areas they they crush us in most, but we have our little niche where we're just as good or better than they are. Uh, and then as far as you know, the, the internet, um, we just you know we we sold that Apple One for three hundred seventy-five thousand dollars, but we just we just sold a baseball card last week for over one hundred twenty thousand dollars. So there is there is this intersection because auctions it's it's very strange in this world of where we're going where you know where you have the Amazon model where you can just go and buy something and auctions different you got to go there and participate on each lot you know and and we don't know how that world's going to change but but still because of the passion and the collectors and the competitive competitiveness of an auction people are still participating but mostly online it's but it's a fascinating future uh, that we're looking into we you, you know Online is, is going to dominate, but how do you, you know, how, how you've got to get, in order to participate in the auction, you have to be at your computer at a certain time. Sure. All right. This has been terrific. Before we close out, just one thing, um, or one question, to sort of in news you can use or information to use for, for the listeners. <clears throat> Say I've got some item or collection or something in my basement or attic that I feel is, is 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 really valuable. What's the process in terms of okay, I want to reach out to RR or, or any auction house, but you know, and say I feel this is valuable enough that experts ought to analyze it and come take a look at it or do I need to pack it up and ship it? How do you start if you've got something that you think this belongs in an auction uh, at, at a at a higher end kind of auction house. It's one of those things, you know. It's it's so simple because of technology today. All you really got to do is take a picture of it and give us a call, yeah. you know, at our auction or, or send us an email and say, "Listen, you know, my father always said this was valuable. He got it from his grandfather. What is it?" Well, we'll find out because you know we're always looking for treasure. So if you've got treasure in your house, uh, let us let our auction know. And if you don't. We'll we'll tell you, yeah, yeah. but but it's our job. You know, the, the great thing about an auction house as opposed to giving it to a dealer or an antique dealer, you know, someone to come and all give you some cash for that. Yeah. It's like no, no, no. We, we work for you. We're your agent. You know, we're here to uh, your personal property. It's our job, our fiduciary duty, to make you as much money as possible. So as so as it as it might seem easier just to call some dealer over to come to your house and give you you know some money. It's better to at least take a picture of it and send it to our auction. We can say yeah, just you know. It's, it's worth what he's going to pay you or, you know, we can get a lot of money for that. Sure. So it's uh, it's it's simple. It's a simple process. Don't be afraid. You know, uh, auctions are mysterious to some people, but it yeah. isn't a cattle auction. It's yeah. really it's it's really you. The auction house is filled with specialists and experts that can appraise your property and they don't charge you to do it. So that's that's a 
that's a pretty good service just to know that that's out there because it's in the auction house's it's in the auction house's best interest to inspect your property and appraise it and then sell it. Excellent. Excellent. All right, Bobby Livingston, RR Auction. This has been a terrific conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's great, Cosmo. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Bobby for joining us. Up next, Two Minutes with Tom. Hello, Tom. Away on air. Hi, Cayenne. Welcome back to Two Minutes with Tom. What, what edition is this? Do you have any idea? What is it, Brooke? 38. It's our 38th episode of OA on Air. 38. Mm-hmm. Growing old with OA on Air. Oh, <laughs> look at that. Diane, it's nice there. to talk to you. How are you doing? Good. Very happy. We have, um, we're this week, we're talking about Lift the Cap on Kids, which <clears> is a great initiative. And um, the Boston Globe came out and editorialized in favor of it, uh, which is an issue, you know, to... Uh, Full disclosure that we here in this uh, at O'Neill and Associates have been working on, mm-hmm. so we're excited. So, cap on kids. I mean, it's it's um, kind of a catch-all phrase, but the fact of the matter is, this is a piece of legislation that dates back to the middle in, into the middle nineties when it became a national phenomenon to cap welfare mothers, especially with newly born children, to not be on welfare. Uh, if if they had been on welfare prior to the birth of that child. Mm-hmm. And so what the CAP does, what the CAP lift does, is it, it takes and, and allows the children of that woman, of that of that mother, to receive extra monies during the course of, of, of a month and and forever long they're on welfare. Yeah. And th- this is all people on welfare, but it really affects in the state of Massachusetts to the order of about 8,700 children. Yeah. Costing the state, I don't know, 10 to $12 million, which as far as welfare budgeting is concerned, is a, is, is a drop in the bucket, is a larger issue. The caps are, are rising or coming off completely, I think, in 20-odd of the 50 states where it had passed back in the 90s because they see the legislation of yesteryear is no longer germane to what's going on today. Yeah. It gets to a larger issue. Kids need to be fed. They need to be healthy because healthy children create success. And if you, if you prevent them from having a healthy meal, if you prevent them from health care coverage and, and capabilities, then you're going to have an awful lot of problems on your hands. So let's wipe out that problem. Let's lift the cap and get it done. Yeah, and we've um, we're really fortunate and grateful. The legislature has overwhelmingly supported both the House and the Senate. Yeah, and that's conservatives uh, as well as as liberals, because people have this conjured up feeling in their mind about welfare mothers just going out and having more kids for the sake of kids, and not quite the story, and not quite the fact. No, as a matter of fact, not at we all. have we have collegiate and university studies that that deny or, or, or denounce all of that. And uh, the fact of the matter is, there are still nearly 9,000 kids in the state of Massachusetts that need, you know, to have a, a, a nutritious meal in the morning, and uh, they need health care. And so we want to make sure that that, that does, in fact, get taken care of. Yeah. Um, uh, over the course of the last couple of years of working on this, one of the things that was most remarkable to me was the amount of parents we heard from that said, you know, $100 a month, which is what it is um, for another That's child. That's the difference. It's $100. Between what they receive, which is something like $540 a month, yeah. an extra 80 or $100 a month. It's an extra $100 a month for children who are considered, quote unquote, cap kids, which is terrible, but it's how they're referred to. Yeah. Um, you know, that that means 
diapers. Uh, you know, we heard stories from a, a mother who said that she had to let her babies cry themselves back to sleep, even though they needed their diaper change in the middle of the night because she knew she didn't have enough mm. diapers left and couldn't afford more. You get a family of three or four living on, on $600 a month as an individual, people ought to try it and it's, find out the impossibility it's remarkable. of it. Yeah. Um, so this is a great thing. Um, you know, here in Massachusetts, we've had uh, enormous support for this. I think we're going to see it get done hopefully yep. soon, which is great. And, um, you know, it's, it's the right thing to do, in my opinion. Yep. So, Thanks for this, and I'm glad you brought some awareness to it. Thanks, Tom. Bye, Cayenne. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air. Now, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week.